Hello and welcome to the latest Blindspot podcast. Sorry, we're an hour and 15 minutes late. We are trying to do these regularly at the same time. <laughs> anyway, today we're joined by Ben Munster, who is right. coming live from no, none other than, can I declare where you are, Ben? Holy ben. Sea itself. The Holy Ooh, Sea is the holy exactly sea. literally in the Vatican. Uh, it's holy. Does this in chapel? So, he's in Rome. We should probably talk a little bit, like catch everybody up, because I think almost nobody's aware of what's going on, to be no. honest. Yes. So, Josh, why don't you do the um, do the ultimate um, sort of recap of what's what we want to talk about? Okay. So this went uh, about a about a year ago. Uh, Ratzinger gave his, a publication. Ratzinger, the former pope, the one who abdicated, uh, gave a publication to his publisher and told them not to publish it until his death. So he died on December 31st, and they published, I think what he, I think there's three volumes came out. Am I, am I right about that, Ben? Um, three volumes? Uh, three books? I've heard there's three books. Well, the, the one I read was uh, 16 chapters in one book, and like, um, of which... But, but or... I, heard the, I heard the publisher has three books total they're publishing. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I read the, on the first day. Well, Ben is here to debunk a lot of the a lot yeah, yeah. of the uh, nonsense well, that's going around about this because so, it turns out some of this isn't as like repressed revelatory. as yeah as some others have been saying. So, so in the book, uh, he asserts basically that the seminaries in it sounds like Germany and I think in the U.S. have turned into basically gay brothels, and uh, that there's a huge number of bishops that do not uh, actually accept the faith anymore and basically are uh, not really Christian, God-believing, Jesus-believing Catholics. So uh, it's, it's sort of a description of like corruption. Um, but, and, 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 this is, and it's not making a lot of news anywhere in the world. Uh, there's a lot of critiques of like local, particularly Catholic media seeming to black out the documents and such. So uh, we shall see. But Ben, uh, you've been looking at the uh, at the tweets that made this go semi-viral in very specific areas. Um, so, what was the tweet that really like sent Tradcaf uh, Twitter mad this week? Because it well, well yes. Yeah, so, so, like so like June, like June Seth said, there's this perception that Benedict was sort of secretly railing against these, you know, gay seminarians and secret homosexual societies inside the Vatican, you know, corrupting it from the inside. Um, and but if you actually look at what's been tweeted, there's one quote, which is um, in the context of a quite long, discursive, quite scholarly chapter by Benedict on um, just the general sort of decadence of the church. He mentions in passing gay priests. He says, Homo club homosexuality, and then moves on to another thing that, you know, he says is wrong, you know, like priests um, living with like, you know, married lay people, for instance, in, in, the same, in the same seminary. But he doesn't qualify the gay comment at all. And this kind of indicative of the, the, the general thrust of his sort of book is either old essays that were just sort of compiled into an anthology or um, sort of personal, you know, him personally redressing like various grievances that have come up in the past, which actually don't bear at all on, um, the, you know, homosexual clubs or like, you know, Francis being a secret funder of woke causes or any of this stuff. There's basically none of the stuff that has been sort of sold to us by sort of the tradcats are actually in the book itself, if you actually read it. But Is it your presumption that these are basically just his already disclosed views on stuff then? Um, it's not my presumption. It's, um, it's so, so to, to step back, so you've got these people like Pope underscore head and, you know, Michael Knowles, who was like a Daily Wire commentator. He's like a Tradcath sort of ally of Ben Shapiro. They're, they're, they're sort of, they're, they're spinning this as if it's some kind of um, secret plot, you know, the things that Benedict was too scared to say while he was alive because of the sort of woke St. Francis clique that would have gone out, you know, that would have come for him. And so, yeah, there's this, all this stuff about the, the gay clubs and whatever. Um, but 
in reality, um, having read the book, right, that comment about, you know, gay clubs or whatever, it was it was published originally in the Corriere della Sera, which is an Italian uh, daily, in 2019. And it was that one comment published, you know, four years ago now, basically, almost four years ago, that has basically just been the source of most of the sort of, you know, outcry. And then they're spending the, the mainstream media silence. First, it doesn't really exist. The Times did a short story about like, there was there was one comment that Ratzinger did make, which was fresh, right? Which was him talking about um, how he didn't want to publish the book until after he died because certain German critics who would have made his, you know, caused a lot of trouble. Um, do we know? Do we that, know? Do we know who who he means by the German critics? Is like what, any idea? Well, I know that there are certain sort of um, th there's a sort of separatist movement kind of within the German church. They're doing their own synod, which is like a kind of gathering of the faithful where they sort of um, can consider new doctrine or whatever. Um, and I know that Francis himself has criticised that. And um, I think Benedict was maybe perceived as being either too mute towards Francis's certain reforms Francis did or whatever. But there's definitely a lot of um, kind of opprobrium towards him in Germany, um, whether from conservatives who wish he were more conservative or liberals who think he's like, you know, not standing up for, not standing up against the conservatives. So there's a ton of tension there. Um, but this, so that comment about how um, he sort of basically, whenever he says anything, it provokes a murderous outcry in Germany. That was the only comment, the only sort of fresh comment in the book, which was quoted by any of the people spinning this as like a huge scandal. Um, but again, but but it but it was really really it doesn't amount to anything. I mean, it's kind of fair enough, isn't it? Like he, in his position as Pope Emeritus, he didn't want to he didn't want to stir the pot. I guess he is kind of doing it posthumously. But, yeah. he, he was um, also a little sensitive. I, I always got the sense that he was a little sensitive. And, and yeah, you get the right. sense he's he's a timid. He's a timid sort. He doesn't really want to. Um, he doesn't want to cause too much trouble. I mean, so there've been there've been lots of times when he's um, he's been sort of caught in the crossfire between, on the one hand, Francis, who's obviously more progressive, and on the other hand, people like um, the, the Archbishop Vigano. Not Archbishop Vinegar, Cardinal Vigano, um, who's, who is sort of the unofficial, you know, um, king in exile of this sort of like anti-Francis movement. Um, and, and you know, there have been a number of times when Benedict has basically been seen doing things in public that seem like they directly contradict Pope Francis. So the right-wingers the critics have made him into a kind of spiritual figurehead of their movement, even if he's not really into it himself. And then he's always sort of scrambling to disassociate himself from it. So there was a book where he was listed as a co-author um, that was, um, I think it was, it was defending priestly celibacy. So one of Francis's big things is there's sort of this big question over whether he's going to sort of relax celibacy, because that obviously relates to the child abuse scandals, you know, arguably if if priests could marry they they wouldn't go around you know noncing up kids or whatever um but obviously benedict was seen as having defended this policy right no sorry as having defended celibacy um and that caused this major outcry you know oh he's, he's he's allying himself with the traditionalists he's 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 meddling so he he had his name removed from the book he said he never actually was a co-author um and you know, there's a, there are a number of other things where people are basically sort of they, they cast him as um, they cast him as this sort of you know the 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 authentic um, the authentic sort of um, holy father, whereas um, um, who, who's and, and specifically they say his resignation. There are some people, very 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 you know sort of narrow clique of people who say that his resignation was a fraud and wasn't valid. And that basically um, Francis is a pretender. So what you call an anti-pope if you're talking in like sort of 13th century terms. But I mean, as someone pointed out to me, the idea of an anti-pope is ridiculous. I mean, it, it came about, you know, it, it was a medieval concept when people, you know, when, you know, if you, if you were living in New York, for instance, you didn't know 
and, and you know and and some and some guy was sort of going around to claiming you know claiming to be the pope you, you know you, he his his claim could be plausible you know because you can't access you don't have the data to draw on to see who's actually residing in the holy see at, that, at any given point whereas if 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 you know if i declare myself pope now i think people will be able to sort of quite quickly verify that i'm not the pope and i believe it he really well, friends the pope <laughs> I believe almost anything. Yeah, well, oh. you're gullible. <laughs> no, but I think what, what's, worth what's worth unpacking a little bit is this um, broader, the, the context, because not everyone watching is like uh, well-schooled on uh, Catholic history or what's been going on in the last few years. So this this sort of anti-Pope idea, um, it, it's part of this deep church, I would call, that's what I guess we're calling it, the deep church. It's, it's very analogous to the deep state um, conspiracy theory in, in, in terms of politics. I did find it funny that like Benedict's funeral was on January 5th. So this was like, not it's not so much election denial, but it was the, oh, Ben's gone. I don't know where there is. It's not so much um, election denial, but I guess the tra traditional Catholics who never recognized Francis or, or did deny his ascendance there is this election denial thing of course the the ben might be able to tell me uh, more about it because i'm not even though i am a kind of crappy catholic um, i'm not sure of the process but electing the new pope is a very complex consensus protocol no less um because you have to have total consensus right is that is is that right ben um uh, yeah it's, yeah. it's it's like the, the smoke and the and like they wait for hours um, and you have to have it, all the kind of cardinals have to agree or at least unanimous. So it's not even consensus. It's not a majority. You have to have like all the cardinals agree. Oh, you're 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 mute. Yeah, I don't, I don't think all of them have to agree. I believe it's it's a, a majority of some sort. So it's so. 51%. I don't remember exactly what the percentage would be, but I, I think it is some kind of majority. Okay, but it's, it's it's a medieval. I mean, it's a very well, archaic. If there's a split, they can do a coalition and have two popes at once. No, that's a joke, right? Yeah, <laughs> you, can't. you can't. But anyway, the point is, is that they this this faction never accepted that that um, Pope Francis was legitimate, and they have um, been treating Benedict as the de facto pope. Now he's dead. What happens next? Like this is the big intrigue. Well, this this is interesting. So, so there's there's it's worth probably mentioning the Sede Vacantista movement. So since the 1960s, so in the 1960s there was basically obviously like huge sort of like progressive movements, sexual liberation, and all that stuff. Um, and during that period, there was also the Second Vatican Council, which basically sort of in to to, to put it in like the most you know, simplistic terms, it basically made the papacy a bit more progressive, right? And it opened it up to certain, like, you know, they, they, they changed the idea of salvation, basically, to include the possibility of salvation and grace for, you know, uh, a, a, a wider array of people. Um, and in that context, a lot of conservatives basically abandoned the church. And they sort of, you know, retroactively came up with this conspiracy theory that Pius, that uh, was it John the 23rd, who was the Pope at the time, was uh, illegitimate that he was a, because he was a Freemason basically, and Freemasons aren't supposed to write ascend to the papacy. Was he? So, was he? Is that is that confirmed? Um, I actually don't know. I don't know. I mean, I I, I I just kind of assume that because it's part of the conspiracy that it's just not true. But I don't know. Um, but basically, um, but basically, yeah, he. Um, whether or not he was a free Freemason, there's this movement that's been going on since the 1960s that basically holds every single um, every single occupant of the you know the Holy See as just invalid, and it it, it it produces quite a few sort of theological problems as well because like there isn't really a way to rectify it because you know you hold another conclave, all the um, cardinals who are um, who are convening to anoint the new pope, they've been anointed by the previous pope who was legitimate. So every cardinal is illegitimate because they've been appointed by legitimate popes. So basically, there's no way around this. There's no way to restore the papacy short of, you know, basically a miracle, you know. Um, but 
But what happened after Benedict's retirement? So the Sedevacantista movement, literally Sedevacante, which means vacancy, the the Santa Sede is what it's called in Italian. So like the Holy See is vacant, that's the idea. After Benedict um, retired suddenly and abruptly, he was like the first in 600 years to do so. Um, there was another movement that basically sort of an even more fringe version of the Sede Vacantista movement called Bene Vacante, which was this idea that he didn't truly resign, that he was, um, he was, you know, made to do it, coerced to do it by shadowy, like, you know, neoliberal forces or whatever. And then Francis the Pretender was installed in his place. So out of this context arises this huge sort of Vatican culture war with roots, you know, it has roots to the 60s, you know, to this Vatican Council movement, but it also sort of um, has been given a fresh run by Francis's sort of rule, which has been more explicitly progressive than anything since the Second Council. You know, I mean, you have pe you had people like Pope John Paul II who are sort of like perceived as Reaganites, so they didn't cause that much controversy among the right. But right now, it's the, you know they're in it's full blown war, right? Because he's he's not sort of giving in to these you know crusty traditions that you know sort of dominated the the papacy for you know two thousand years or whatever. And he's he's. You know whether you think he's good or not. He's 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 certainly acting much more independently than any other pope before him. So Josh, do you have uh, any views on what Ben said? Uh, well, I mean the I think it's the ascent of a Cante movement, uh, or it's something like it. Is that the, is that the one that Mel uh, Gibson is part of? I think so. Which or which one is he? I think he's. I think that's Mel Gibson's tribe. And I think we have uh, like Luke Dash Jr. in Bitcoin. He's a programmer. He's, yeah. uh, he's sort of one. Of, he's one of these guys as well. I once interviewed him. He um, about eating pets. I think he eats pets. Pet? What? He was he was he was speaking out um, in favor of eating pets, basically, because he said they're no different to you know eating a chicken or eating, eating a cow or anything. <laughs> like your dog. Well, it was kind of the logical extreme of the sort of Bitcoin uh, diet thing, you know, where they, they don't eat seed oils and they eat only steak. And he was thinking, well, God, he, he told me that God put animals on earth to serve us, right? And, you know, so you can make, there's no distinction to really be made between a chicken and a cat. It's just that we have a sort of superficial affection for cats because we're weak, basically. So the, the strong and rational thing like is to... <laughs> <laughs> That's because you're weak, Isabella. Because you're weak. <laughs> you're a weak person. I love Luke. If you had any courage, you would take. Do you have any pets? Me? Yeah. I, I left her at uh, the doggy uh, daycare this morning. You've just outed yourself now as not being. You already there. outed me. Like, like, <laughs> I thought you were going to say you left her in the fridge. <laughs> I put her on ice when I leave. Um, but yeah, so this is, it's fascinating because this, this whole mythology is, um, it is a culture war within the Catholic, um, system. Um, a lot of the stuff is coming from America. I think Vigano has a big American following. Is do, do, Vigano is one of the, is he a cardinal or a bishop? I'm not sure. He's a, he's a, he's a cardinal for sure. But he's one of the guys who's very much proliferating this idea that there is, that the current Catholic system is not legitimate. Um, you know, that he's almost like the, like a sort of Vatican in exile at this point. I, he, I'm surprised he hasn't been excommunicated by Francis, actually. We don't really do that anymore. They don't do that well, yeah. anymore? So he basically tried to, um, early on in Francis's papacy, he tried to, um, he basically tried to sort of, expose him and have him you know, completely tar his reputation. Vigano tried to tar uh, Francis's reputation. Basically, um, he released these these files, right, this, this huge dossier that supposedly showed that Francis had sort of um, failed to, um, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd covered up the abuse of this, um, this Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, right? And there was this huge scandal, right? But, and it could have, it probably could have like severely harmed Francis' reputation, if not for the fact that um, Vigano basically 
uh, asked him to resign. He was urging him publicly to resign, which which actually produces a sort of theological sort of conundrum because a pope can only resign on his own terms, right? So having been asked to resign, he can't do it. So Vigano basically ended up completely discrediting himself by um, by releasing this dossier and asking Pope Francis to resign. And ever since, he's just sort of become like, yeah, he's, he's I don't know, he's, he's a bit like Gulen, you know, the, the sort of... Um, the the Turkish um, Erdogan critic who's out in hiding in like Philadelphia or whatever and writing all these screeds and sort of being being accused of orchestrating you know military coups in Istanbul but you know he's probably not really doing anything I think Viga knows the same he's he's holed himself up in a bunker somewhere in Michigan or whatever the hell and he's um he's spewing a lot of bile and he's saying a lot of things but I think he really doesn't have much power he's already done his he's already made his big shot. And there's not really any way he can follow it up because, I mean, how do you follow that up? So, yeah, I don't know. Sorry, I can't yeah. with you, but um, Josh, you were very excited about this story, and I want to know why you were so excited about this story. Well, I like chaos more than anything. And uh, I think it's really interesting when there's a bunch, like the Tradcats, I think have been given very little uh, the last few years. Uh, other than just kind of like sitting and watching and uh, wishing that Benedict were still the Pope. And, uh, and he, or, well, you know, I guess he was the Pope, but like, I don't know what you'd call it, the, not the Pope Emeritus. Uh, I don't know what his position officially would have been, but, but I think, I think it's just like the church has not had, I think, as much trouble as it's had in the last like 50 years. And it's a, it is a, a giant force. And I think particularly in the U S people don't realize how much power the Catholic church has, or at least has had in the past or will continue to have in the future, depending. Um, and I just find, I, I find the chaos to be really intriguing, especially given that Benedict and, uh, and Francis really represent sort of, I think the same fight that much of the world is having right now between like uh, wokeism and uh, and sort of traditionalism, Francis being sort of a trope of wokeness and yet still a very independent, uh, fairly traditional guy. Benedict being like old school pre Vatican II type traditionalism, and that's uh, that's really interesting to me. There's, I think there's that's like really, really... that is really interesting and ties with what Ben was telling me. Like Ben, because I, you were giving me some really interesting insight about how um, this idea that that Francis is this progressive pope isn't quite right. Is 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 that fair? Yeah. Well, it's it's not so much that he's not progressive. It's more that just in the context, you know, compared to what we now consider, you know, progressives to be, you know, um, he's he most of his views still sort of come from the Middle Ages. I mean. I went to this exorcism conference, and you know it's fully, fully authorized and sanctioned by Pope Francis. And they're just, they're just going around, like sort of very soberly discussing how to remove the devil from someone whose eyes have rolled back and gone black, and whose people who are, you know, spewing black bile and speaking in tongues, and you know, um, and you know, and, and was it just, just yesterday, basically? I think there was this news that he's sort of now said that being gay isn't, um, isn't a sin. But but I mean, this comes after years and years of you know dithering and sort of um, confusion. He, he said it's not, still not it's really not a clear. crime, right? So, right, right. He said it's not a crime, but he was sort of he wasn't clear on whether it's a sin. And like, so, I mean, when you when you're looking at this stuff, everything has to be sort of taken relatively because nothing Francis does by the standard of any liberal is in any way woke at all. You know, okay. He, he rails against capitalism and he, and, he, and he talks about, you know, protecting migrants and like, you know, so on, on those fronts, um, he's, he's, he's more of a he's more of a socialist in terms of his outlook. You know, he he's but but he sort of he's mostly a skewed sort of identity politics and the stuff that we associate with wokeness. Really, he's sort of an old school, like class warrior, if anything, you know, he came from Argentina. He fought the military. Into... Yeah, and, so and by he... the way, I think that for me is another fascinating thing is a large portion of the sort of socialist movement in the Catholic church was sort of quelled and quashed back under like John Paul and uh, particularly the, the Central American and, and South American parts of that movement were really sort of condemned and booted out. 
And it's sort of weird to see a person who persists in some of that ideology to be the Pope now. And uh, meanwhile, the emeritus Pope is like the opposite, completely the opposite of that, and is one of the most eloquent writers of, uh, of, of the modern age in terms of someone who's taken that office. Yeah, because Francis obviously came, uh -oh. he was a Jesuit. Then you're, you're uh, muted. Uh, sorry. Um, sorry, Ben. I, I just muted you for a second. Just for, to, to, to reduce the feedback. I, I'll, I'll just finish saying that Francis obviously was a Jesuit, and Jesuits in South America are famous for pushing or advancing liberation theology, which, Correct. Josh, I'm sure you know more about than me, but that's like the socialist arm of the Catholic Church. Um, based on the kind of Je Jesuit philosophy, right? Is that correct? Yeah, and I I, I don't know which encyclical it was, but I think there's an encyclical where it was basically condemned and uh, sort of, you know, th thrown out, saying that this was not not really an okay teaching within the church, uh, particularly. I mean, I think it was uh, JP two is very anti-communist, right? Well, and being, I mean, here we, we have a perfect <laughs> representation here because we've got a poll. A, a South American kind of you, American South American hybrid, um, and we've got Ben in in uh, in Rome. So J I'll I'll do the JP JP bit. So JP John Paul II or Carol Carol Vitola as we call him, he um, he was an anti communist, and I think that was you know he famously you know I think the the Polish Church. Was always at loggerheads with with communism. Communists were mostly pro atheism. They didn't like. They barely tolerated the church. If they to tolerated anyone, it was the Jesuits because they saw the Jesuits as more aligned. So, the Catholic schools that were allowed to kind of proliferate in in Poland during communism were the Jesuit ones, um, as far as I understand. So Pope John Paul II ascending to the papacy, it was a big thing. And this, of course, links to some of this uh, schism stuff because um, it links into the Fatima prophecies. And the Fatima prophecies are actually very key to this deep church um, schism because uh, in 20, I think in 1917, these three peasant children in Portugal um, saw an apparition of Mary. It's a very famous Marian uh Thing. And um, she predicted something like, um, if you don't consecrate Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, then terror, like nations will disappear. And I'm, I'm doing terrible paraphrasing of this, but something of that sort. She, she predicted all hell for everybody. Russia right? would spread so, its errors across the world, or something. That was it. Russia would spread its errors across the world, and this was interpreted by some as being indicative of of Len, you know lenin and and the beginnings of communism and so it became very controversial this this idea of uh, what's the word consecrating russia and john paul ii end, ended up doing it but for diplomatic reasons he didn't do it quite right and a lot of people said oh no you didn't fulfill the prophecy. You had to have every bishop and every cardinal, whatever, doing it at the same time, exactly, blah, blah, blah. And so there was this big question over um, whether it was done right. But on top of that, one of the children, the two others died, but one was called Sister Lucy. And Sister Lucy uh, took a vow of becoming a nun or whatever you do. And <laughs> real Catholics are going to be appalled with my explanation of this. Um, but she ended up writing down the secrets that Mary told her, and, and she wasn't allowed to release them, I think, until after the 60s. Um, and she wrote down three secrets. And the first two they did reveal, and they, they I can't remember now, um, there was something innocuous. And then the third one they held back, and it became hugely significant. Everyone is speculating, what's the third secret of Fatima? And then Benedict, when he ascended to the papacy, he actually released, he allegedly released the third secret and it was a real letdown. It was something to do with like some weird vision of a Pope walking up a mountain and getting like shot or so, not shot, but there was some soldiers. It was, it was weird. Um, and this was, it was Huh? It was Blitz what? later. Yes, it, was the exactly. it was the equivalent of that like obscure Russian exchange that the, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like Securities and Exchange Commission recently like sued or something. So, but everyone, so the official interpretation of the vision was that it predicted the assassination attempt on John Paul II. 
Um, and that was it, done and dusted. But the trad calves and the people who'd like, who thought there was like apocalyptic um, visions and true secrets in it, they've never accepted that this was the real secret. They've always said that it was held back and it's not been properly um, revealed. And I think this intrigue has created a a sort of moral justification for the idea that Fatima, the, the, the consecration also never happened, right? And so funnily enough, when the Ukraine war broke out in February, this all escalated again. And actually the um, Ukrainian um, Orthodox, uh, sorry, the Ukrainian Catholic um, Catholic priests and uh, bishops or whatever it is, this is terrible, I'm such a bad Catholic. <laughs> they requested that, that Francis does the ceremony again, just in case it was done wrong, because they saw it as actually the, the invasion is indicative of the fact that the consecration never properly happened and we had to redo it and uh, get it right. And they did it. And Francis actually did it. So now Putin has tapped into this prophecy. Um, and actually, there's a weird spin on it, because if you believe the other side, Putin is actually... Um, there are, there, there are some elements, as far as I understand, we've lost Ben, oh, there he is. Um, some elements have now spun this to say that actually Russia was properly consecrated and now Russia is going to save the world from the errors that spread through communism. So it's that's the that's the uh, the current two interpretations of the. But like, is, is that is that sort of reputable people or is that like Pope head? Yeah, it's it's well, it's not just Pope head. It's I mean, like, I mean, maybe there's no difference. It's those guys, you know. It's the um, it's the Sadi How do you pronounce it? Sadi Well, there's something something you said before, which was about um, John Paul II being sort of seen as this Reaganite. Um, what's interesting is similar to how Benedict has been sort of um, miscast a little bit. John Paul II. So he wrote this encyclical that was um, quite famous, where it looked like he really just defended the free market system, you know, without reserve. Um, but he was actually sort of motivated to edit certain things or like leave out his actual thoughts or certain other parts were, there were these two sort of American Catholics who sort of were very influential in sort of influencing him when he wrote it. And if you actually read the encyclical itself, he does actually mention, you know, that the free markets are good. And then he'll say like, within Does the within unbridled reason. capitalism encyclical? Yeah. <laughs> The like the the one that advocates for like pump and dump schemes within reason. <laughs> within reason, it's a, he, he talks about how capitalism is going to unbridled capitalism. However, can be a great evil. Yeah, exactly. Like but the that, free that market seems... is a thrill, but like you know what an even bigger thrill is, you know, our Lord and Savior. Oh, <laughs> nice. Um, but but John Paul II obviously did help through the Catholic network. Um, they did. They did help bring down communism. There's no doubt that the Catholic system was used as a fifth and, column. And, 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 yeah, and, but, but that, and, that doesn't make him a sort of like, you know, like um, died in the wool anarcho-capitalist or like Reaganite or like free marketeering crusader. He, he was still he was still more cautious in his sort of support for capitalism. But obviously he was he was still against sort of <clears throat> at least Soviet communism. Like I'm not saying he was a socialist or anything. But he, even even his own sort of um, endorsement of capitalism was was sort of ginned up by his um, by the, the the more conservative sort of um, elements in the same way that Benedict sort of Benedict himself like he did have some more conservative views than Francis for sure, but he um, he wasn't the sort of figurehead that they painted him as. He was he was much more moderate and much more reasonable. But, from what but, but worth, much more boring than, I mean, having read his book. But also it's worth pointing out that Poland itself, like when it was independent before it became you know, in that brief period of independence in the interwar period. Um it was um sorry I just muted you for feedback reasons. Um it was it was very divided. So there was a very strong right wing and a very strong left wing. And it was pretty much as divided, divided as it is today. And depending on which side you took, um, it was, it was, you know, I would imagine that John Paul II wouldn't have been entirely like radical, le like leftist or radical right wing, because as a reflection of Polish society, he had to appeal 
to both sides and it there was a definite divide there um but what about you know the fifth column idea um and how it applies to today is that um i was doing this unheard thing yesterday with um constantin from trigonometry which is a mm -hmm. it's quite uh, i don't watch it but maybe you know and he's ukrainian he's russian ukrainian and one of the he he was presenting a very nuanced opinion about wokeism in general and saying that his audience doesn't really appreciate the fact that he's very pro ukraine and he was saying that um in that context you know you have to have nuance it can't you know you, you there's a there's an element in in the anti-woke movement that is very binary like if 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 the Guardian says this is good, we must say it's bad. And if, you know, and, and it, it's a bit absurd. So they end up being pro-Russia, even though, um, you know, logically they should be, you know, Ukrainian sovereignty and, and the fight for national nationalist sort of identity is, is traditionally quite a right-wing idea. So what he was saying, though, is that um, the spin on the fact that Zelensky has banned the Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox Church that has been, that has been incredibly um, overhyped. Um, <clears throat> it's true that he banned it, but that's fair enough in war because the Russian Orthodox Church was genuinely being used in Ukraine as a fifth column of the Russians. So what are you going to do? And there is a sort of reluctance on the on the pro-Ukraine side to acknowledge the fact that this was justifiable in the context of war, um, and they're kind of pussyfoot pussyfooting around a little bit as a result. But I thought that was interesting because it is an analogous to how the Catholic Church was used as a fifth column to bring down communist, communism. So Putin is kind of doing the same thing to Ukraine, what um, Pope John Paul did to the Soviet Union, if that makes sense. Oh, no, I've got nothing. I'm just taking it. And do, you, do you know some of these tried cast guys like Pope Head? I know he's there in Vatican as well. <laughs> um, you run into them? Know. I assumed Pope Head was the man himself. <laughs> I mean, it's no, but Ben did go to the Gladiator School. That's really interesting. He yeah, wrote a piece yeah, about that. That's kind of linked into this intrigue, isn't it? Because Steve Bannon, yeah, sure. Steve <clears throat> Bannon wanted to revive the trad calf thing, and he was going to build this sort of. Well, you tell tell the story. Well, well, American Catholic conservatives and like I guess some English ones as well are like deeply invested in like the the war against Francis, and. Um, Steve Bannon um, used to sort of spend a lot of time going to conferences there and sort of Zoom calling with all the like sort of dark Vatican cardinals and stuff like that. And he met this guy called Benjamin Harnwell. Um, and Harnwell is a really interesting person. He um, he basically, he used to work in Brussels um, and he founded this thing under this uh, conservative MP, MEP called Nersh Deva. And... Um, under like while he was in brussels he founded this think tank called the institute dignitas humanae or something which mean which literally translates like it's you know it's pretentiously in latin it's, but it's it means the institute of human dignity and he basically he's one of these people who believes that like western judeo-christian values have basically been allowed to um, atrophy over the last say half century or something um and together with bannon basically having left brussels and moved to rome he decided to found in this ancient monastery called Trisulti, which is in the mountains of central Italy, near a beautiful, tiny little hilltop <laughs> town called Ardo, right? Um, he basically founded this um, this putative kind of what he called the gladiator school, the Academy for the Judeo-Christian West. And the idea was basically that they would train sort of would-be sort of politicians and populists of the far right to to not only not only um it, the idea wasn't just to train them in the dark you know catholic conservative arts like, technical, like teaching them the theology and stuff but it was mostly designed to teach them how to better present the ideas that they already have in the context of like a leftist dominated press you know so they'd be taught all these sort of conservative talking points um, i'm trying to think of one um Oh, there was one which was like, yeah, there were sort of sound bites, like ways of presenting like an anti-abortion argument better. So like women may have the right to choose, but they also have the right to choose life, like sort of quirky little sound bites like that. The, the school basically never took off because like 
Hanwell basically credits it to like left wing conspiracy theories and like insane stuff like that. But you know, uh, you know, but there's there's a bunch the of schools like that around the world. The, the, there's been there's been a movement of that sort of thing um, for the last probably thirty years. The most prominent being Campus Crusade for Christ's uh, establishment of a college in New York City called the King's College. Same exact mission. The mission is to train up. Uh, it's supposed to. The, the goal was to make a Christian college that was equivalent to like the Ivy Leagues or something like that, and then send uh, Christians into places of leadership, particularly politics. And it's more, I mean, it's not Catholic, it's evangelical, but it's exactly the same type of thing. So this is kind of a popular, a popular thing to do. Uh, it has been for the last 30 years and just kind of try to establish these. And, and it's actually kind of interesting. Uh, like at the King's College, they had a lot of buy-in. So people like Peter Kreft uh, actually were, were pr pr professing there and such. Um, there's a lot of fairly large names. Peter Wood, uh, the columnist, is a big one. And uh, at one time, Dinesh D'Souza was president of the college and uh, had an inglorious fall when he cheated on his wife. So there's a bunch is of... Is evangelical? Yeah. Uh, wait, is who? Dinesh D'Souza. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's an evangelical. Peter Kreft really isn't. Know. Peter Kreft is not an evangelical. He's like a staunch Catholic. All right. It's interesting. It's interesting how like, I guess the evangelicals, they're more sort of decentralized, aren't they? Like they don't really have a sort of focal point, whereas the Catholics, they all basically look at Rome, I guess, obviously, because of this sort of not it's also got this history, you know, obviously being the cradle of Western civilization and all that, but um, also being the center of Christendom. So so Rome has sort of become this this place to do politics and like sort of um, glad hand if you're if you're a right wing conservative guy and try and like influence or it's a place where you think you can influence. I think this is Bannon's problem. He sort of made a lot of contacts with high card and like high profile cardinals and people like that in Rome and sort of like went around like doing the rounds, making friends. But nothing really came of it because you can't really make waves in the Vatican if you're an outsider. Um, but, you well, know, so you, you, know, you, you were like, saying. You Sorry, you were saying that Italy is also very transparently either communist or fascist, right? There isn't the same sort of like people are just transparently X or Y, and, and the society just accepts it, right? Is it that's what you were saying earlier to me? Uh, I was, there's a there's an element of truth in that, like the 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 fascists you get in Italy aren't you know you know in in america if you like wear a, a maga hat you're called a fascist or if you like um if you like own a truck or something you're a fascist whereas here like you might well be a genuine fascist you know your your grandfather might have been like you know <laughs> like strong italian up. fascist the real fascist yeah he might have been like you know like as undersecretary to like mussolini or something so it's and, and whereas the the communists um you know, there was, Italy basically had the biggest communist party in the Western world and, until like 1980, until the, the, the early 90s. So, so if you say you're a communist, you might genuinely be a communist. I mean, there are, there are places with really storied communist tradition, like you don't get in any other Western countries. I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe France a little bit. Um, but I mean, like in, in, in the really recent future. Um, but I don't know, what, what was, was there something more specific you wanted to know? I can't, I can't remember why I mentioned it, but obviously, I like I in terms of, <laughs> in terms of, I think in terms of the kind of um, context of of Bannon coming into Italy and thinking he can he can sort of cultivate a movement. I guess he was tapping into the more right wing element, right? But um, but of course, Italy is also in the grips of the mafia. Where I mean, where do they fall? They're not communists, right? But they the mafia's origins are also quite. Quite working class in some Definitely ways. Definitely not fascist either. Um, the fascists cracked down on the mafia. They probably did the best job of, of, of sort of ridding them. But also the Communist Party in the um, I can't remember when exactly, but in the in the you know mid sort of twentieth century, the Communist Party like um, they had they basically had a lot of influence at the grassroots level in a lot of southern places. So like they were able to also combat the mafia and sort of help people get out of it and and, and resist. So the mafia occupies a kind of grey zone. It's not. It's not right wing. It's not left wing. It's it's its own thing. Cosa Nostra, right? It's literally its own thing. Um, and it. I mean, the 
the recent arrest of this guy, Matteo Messina Donato, he, he was part of this sort of faction in the Cosa Nostra in the 90s, which tried actively to sort of um, challenge the state. It tried to turn itself into a, a sort of regional, like a, a sovereign power, right? And then it was eventually crushed because it went too far. But um, I'm trying to think what? if there are any the mafia to, to the Vatican. Well, while, while we have you here, it would be yeah. really cool to get your, um, you know, a quick explainer because I'm sure Josh has no idea about it. Like, what's the kind of structure of the Italian political scene at the moment? So we know that Maloney has, you know, allegedly a fascist has taken over control. Everyone freaked out about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that was very much was you know, only the only people surprised about it were non-Italians, right? And um, but th th there is a a more oh hi are you sorry sorry yeah sorry um it just keeps cutting off but yeah sorry carry on, carry on. No, no it's okay but also there's this broader kind of you know from berlusconi to um to the draghis of this world and the five star movement just give us a picture of like the madness of italian politics i think it's worth just getting that through yeah all right so you you really have to go back to the 90s to understand it so like well even the second world war i mean really the fall of uh the fall of the roman republic if we really want to understand it <laughs> no so basically um after the second world war very briefly there were two main parties two, basically two main political blocks there was christian democracy which was basically sort of like the center left establishment and then the perennially sort of um suppressed communist party which was huge but never actually got to office like there was a sort of compromise in the 70s where they sort of had some more power but they ultimately basically were never in office um christian democracy basically had all of these tiny dragged along with it all of these sort of other sort of smaller factions which sort of clung on and like um and it basically held on to coalitions until the mid 90s where it was just completely exposed as having been this clientelist mess of like bribes and kickbacks and mafia connections and all sorts of malfeasance right so basically every um almost almost like i swear something like half or even more than half of the mps sitting mps in the um in christian democracy which had been the sole sort of like ruling coalition leader since the night since the end of the second world war almost all of them were um were implicated in, in in bribery scandals or whatever and and the and the members of their coalition parties as well so like bettino craxi he was the he was the big guy in the socialist party which was allied to the um, christian democracy and so basically the, the entire political establishment just collapsed in the 90s um and it was funny like um so out out of that sort of mess rose um emerged berlusconi um a guy called umberto bossi who was the founder of the League. So a lot of people think of the League as this sort of recent development, you know, Salvini and all that, but the League actually emerged in the 90s. Um, and also um, from the fallen Communist Party, which wasn't exposed as this sort of, as a clientelist mess, but basically just disbanded after the fall of the Berlin Wall, because it was kind of just seen as a bit embarrassing being associated with it anymore, as, as well as like obviously much more complex factors. Um, out of Christian, out of the Communist Party arose the Democratic Party, and so it's it's a weird one. It's a, it's really 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 hard to piece together. But basically, all of these competing factions basically tried to like claim the neutral ground of like clean and good politics. You know, we're not going to be like the old guys. Obviously, every single one of them ended up being exposed in their own bribery scandals. So this first wave of sort of post collapse, they called it bribesville. So this the first wave of sort of post bribesville parties all wound up being implicated in scandals themselves, even having built their platforms on challenging the corruption of the previous political class so Berlusconi, you know he was he was his his whole tenure was basically characterized by scandals he didn't really do anything except like sell off all the national sort of assets to you know pr private companies whatever um so there was just endless malaise basically until uh the mid-noughties no was it the mid-noughties no i think it was sorry 2013 i think um when basically um at that point, you had there basically been um, a back and forth, an endless back and forth between Berlusconi and the post-communist Democratic Party, which was a lot of the communists who are part of that party. Am I making sense? I can slow down, by the way. 
no, um, no, keep going. But like, so, 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 so just we're getting that. we're getting to the present. Yeah. Um. Basically, a lot of the um, a lot of the uh, the communists and the communist party overcompensated and became like super pro free markets and all that stuff. So they ended up forming this democratic party, which sort of ended up bouncing, uh, you know, um, going in, you know, going into power, like, you know, roughly every other year to Berlusconi. Um, and that just proved to be just as sort of um, useless and, and, and unproductive as, as, as all of the previous parties have been. So out of that rose, you have five star and then... Um, well, explain the, the five star yeah. philosophies. There was like an algorithm to there was like tied to these computational ideas, right? Because everything that humans had tried to do in Italy was so disappointing. So five five star tried to do the ultimate kind of technocratic, you know, party um, solution. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Basically, so because the political class was so sort of awful and corrupt. Um, there was this dreamer, this guy called Gian Roberto Luigi, Gian, sorry, um, Gian Roberto Casaleggio. He basically, um, he basically tries to build a new party that wouldn't be a party, be a movement, it'd be anti-political. And this whole platform was basically just like being anti-politicians. It didn't really have any concrete policies or anything, but it began. Uh, like, Antipo? Yeah. And it and it kind of began on like this app meetup in like 2013. And people just crowd in squares and basically just say like "fuck off" to the establishment. That was basically it. It was just completely sort of just this sort of outcry of rage and anger. And it didn't really have any sort of political. There wasn't really any way to properly channel it. But eventually, eventually, um, it ran a few of its members for like local offices and mayorships and stuff like that. And eventually, it just managed to sort of inveigle itself into high office. And that was, you know, concurrent with the rise of the league, the re-rise of the league. So the league had emerged from the 90s, but the league sort of sagged a bit, disappeared a bit, and then re-emerged under Salvini and with the same sort of populist momentum behind it. And then so what happened was the league and um, Five Star eventually ended up forming a coalition government together, which because it wasn't a very effective government really, ended up basically discrediting both parties, which leads to um, basically the COVID era, everything's going to shit, nothing's working. Um, and then you have Mario Draghi, former European Central Bank chief, who is basically just sort of installed because he's considered the only competent man left in Italy, basically. So he's kind of just installed to clear up the mess left by the last 20 years of sort of politicking. He doesn't really manage to fix anything either, but he's also part of a long trend of technocrats just being inserted to clean up the mess left by the populists, basically. And then he doesn't achieve anything. And then all of the people who allied him, themselves with him, you know, so the League, Five Star, all of these people who had previously claimed to be different and sort of independent and not part of the establishment had allied themselves with Draghi, tarred themselves in doing so, lost credibility, leaving room for the only sort of politician who wasn't allied with Draghi and who was still sort of playing to a far right, you know, playing to sort of populist um, grievances. And that was Maloney, who is um, whose party, Brothers of Italy, um, was is a spin-off of a party founded directly by sort of Mussolini loyalists in the post-war years. I think that was a way too long explanation, but that's, that's basically everything that's happened in Italy. It's, it, it is fascinating, though, <laughs> because it sort of says to me that um, this is what happens to democracy. <laughs> like, after a while, you just get Italian chaos. And, the, the <laughs> you know, but this is like, you know, I'm an ancient, I studied ancient history, so for the, this is the sort of the same circumstances, the total chaos of the Roman Republic eventually gives way to the people wanting a dictator because the dictator at least promises some sort of like order and consistency and after a while like that seems like a good, good option in the context of all that madness and then but then what happens is the security ends up depending on that one person and then that one person either you know they 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 resign they leave office leaving a mess behind or they sort of try and but you know just de develop an author authoritarian kind of like personal rule you know you well, then it becomes a question of succession and like, how do you maintain, exactly. you know, the legitimacy of handing it down to another authoritarian? And obviously the, the deepest ironies about Italy's 
alleged aversion to kingship, like the whole the whole system, obviously, of democracy that they they themselves innovated because Roman democracy was very different to to um, Greek democracy um, stems from this hatred of kingship. And yet they keep, you know, at the end of the day, I, maybe it's something in the Italian psyche. There's just so much. I mean, look. And anyone who's ever been on Alitalia, you you kind of I end up wishing for a dictator. <laughs> the chaos. I, I've never been on an Alitalia play, uh, flight that landed in the uh, destination that I was supposed to be going to. <laughs> Are you sure? You're is it because of strikes? No, it was the right. Like they they they, they is always that, are is that because strikes. Yeah, it's yeah. strikes. Made by a gust of wind. <laughs> It's it's either a gust of wind. There's like I get di diverted. They cancel that flight. They have to like oh you can't go to Rome. You'll have to go to Milan, and then we'll bus you over. They like saying it like mid flight, like sort of just change destination. Sometimes it happened to me once, like when when I was like supposed to be landing in Milano, in Milano, and I ended up having to land in Lanate, which is okay. That's not the worst case scenario, but it's it's a bit annoying. <laughs> so, Did they offer the opportunity to parachute out while they were passing Milan? Sadly not. No, it's not like it's not like having a nice a bus uh, that uh, and a guy a driver who lets you out. No, but Just Josh, what's up. your like? What, what's right. your what's your um, take on all that? Like how how informed European you politics on? are so weird. It, it 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 feels like like I'm you know I'm very American, so like I have a sense of uh, sort of this republic that we've built, and I have like a good sense of its dysfunction. But mm -hmm. Italian politics is always uh, Italian and Spanish politics in particular. I think have always seemed to be uh, utterly dysfunctional to me, and it amazes to me. It amazes me <clears throat> that they're able to have functioning governments. And yet yeah, that what what keeps it functioning is kind of just a vast bureaucracy that basically just does everything on behalf of the ministers. Because, you know, half the time, you, the ministers don't really even know what they're doing. You know, they're, they're new well, to politics because there's, you know, because there's a new populist party every year. Per the, per the greater discussion, I think yeah. what's interesting is the Italian, yeah. the Italian form of government has really built up over the last thousand years, right? And it's built around like this sort of notion of having like a government within the government, you know, and it seems sympathetic to that in some ways, but like all of the ways in which like Italy has sort of forked off and uh, done things with its government, whether it's uh, fascism or whatever, um, or communism, any type of thing seems to like at least somehow incorporate the notion of like the Vatican, or at least it, it's such a big political aspect of like italian politics it's just very interesting to me how, how, well, how it works. it's it's i mean it's really because italy was basically unified in the 19 in the 1860s right and it's basically been trying to be a real country since i don't know if you've read pinocchio but like um this this will be relevant basically, like the original pinocchio the original yeah, yeah the, I've, I've read that i've read the, that the, <laughs> the, the dark and gritty pinocchio original pinocchio but basically, the the idea behind it, right, was like, so after Italy was unified, there was this famous quote by, um, I think it was then like education minister or whatever, who said, um, now we've made Italy, we need to make Italians, right? So this Pinocchio sort of illustrates that story. It was a very sort of of its time. It was about this sort of, you know, this this ill-formed sort of like hunk of wood that needs to become a legitimate sort of person right that's and it's this striving to sort of create a sort of um unified identity that basically defines the whole of the sort of pre and post-war like italian era so that's why it ends up being this laboratory for what like for basically these in, in political experiments because um the, 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 this is this is this is a country that has been divided for two thousand years into these tiny little territories and it's it's looking for meaning and it's searching for meaning and you know in, in figures like Mussolini and um, and but but in but in but in sort of higher more loftier sort of abstract ideals like communism and anarchism and you know and then you have you're, you're you're right I mean like up until democracy or whatever like you're yeah, what the sixteenth sixteenth century even um, you have Italian essentially like little kings of uh, like the entire country's kind of split up and it's being jockeyed for by you know countries all over the world 
uh, I don't know if it was that late, but you know, 16. No, no, no. 16, I mean, it was century, it was literally like that. It was like that until the 1860s. So, so after after the fall yeah. of like the Roman Empire until the like 1863, Italy was like basically a collection of fiefdoms. It was just, and you know that. Yeah. It was being trampled on by its neighbors, especially the Austrians, but also the French and the Spanish, and basically everyone. Everyone wanted a piece of Italy. The only, the only sort of sovereign sort of um, province in Italy, which wasn't really even that sovereign, was the papal territories. But you know, they were always sort of. It was kind of like a sort of um, pre-industrial like Israel. Basically, it was like always sort of propped and up. And even powerful friends. And even the Pope in the medieval era would, would sort of divide up the territory and kind of command people to give their territory yeah, up I mean, yeah, I mean, he had for... the temporal power he would he would just send like huge mercenary armies to like attack like you know like Viterbo or Florence or whatever and you know he, he basically just acted as a kind of um as just another warlord but with this sort of veneer of like you know divine right it's just incredible like I think I think Italy's such a weird I didn't know it was until the 1860s yeah, I mean, split like that yeah i mean even 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 during even after the first world war um uh actually this this is where i get murky the 20s is just a it's just a blind spot for me really but like but like th there was always i mean italy actually extended itself basically through istria which is like sort of northwest Italy, northeast italy so into um into uh was it called fiume which was this italian which was this which is a croatian city now but like so so there were points when it was sort of there was a lot of interplay and a lot of sort of a lot of territorial disputes with like Yugoslavia, also with Austria, even even like relatively recently, like in the last century. Um, in fact, Fiume is really interesting. This is a good side note if you want some some great little uh, a great little bit of uh, intrigue. Um, Fiume after the First World War, so this city that's now Croatian, it was invaded by a bunch of what they called. Arditi, it was like this sort of crack squadron of like Italian First World War soldiers, right? And um, leading them was this guy called Gabriele Denunzio. And he was the um, he was the head of this sort of, he was the head of at least like one um, one band of these Arditi. Arditi literally translates to the daring ones, right? So they were sort of the celebrated like sort of war heroes of the First World War who fought in the Alps against the Austrians and all that stuff. Um, and he basically managed to capture this city um, of Fiume, right? And he basically took over it. He basically, he was also a poet. He was like, he wrote sort of Oscar Wilde-esque sort of like, like novels about like, like comic novels about like um, just the decadent high life in Rome. But then he became this sort of, yeah, like this sort of Croatian warlord. And he basically, while he was um, running things in Fiume, it was like quite a few years, I think, um, he basically invented the branding that would become the hallmark of fascism. Like he was the first to sort of um, salute from a balcony. And he sort of, he had all this sort of like lofty rhetoric about like, you know, like blood and glory and Caesar and, and all that stuff. And, you know, harking back to the, 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 the halcyon days of the Roman empire and all that stuff. And Mussolini was like directly inspired by him. Um, and so this this idea of um, the fact that he was in Fiume in Croatia, which wasn't Italian previously, was sort of, again, like um, it was Italians striving to return to the days when they could just sort of when they just sort of ran the Mediterranean, you know, um, when, when they could just extend their reach as far as um, Gibraltar in the west and whatever the Euphrates in the east and like. But it's not going to happen again, is it? Who knows? Who knows? But I, I, I mean, it, it, it sounds like Afghanistan, basically, like tribal loyalties rather than national um, identity. Yeah. And uh, but it's without like the, the poppies, huh? Without the poppies. Without well, I don't know. I mean, they have and with less likable people. With less likable. Really? People. No, Italians and oh come on, they're <laughs> they're chaos, but they're lovely. They're lovely. I j'adore. Oh, no, that's French. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you speak, know I mean. speak the language very well as well. <laughs> I don't speak the language. But um the a good place to wrap up though um is on the what was I gonna say about Afghanistan and tribal loyalties? Siena. Siena, I think, is the epitome of this tribal system, corrupt system actually. There's this amazing horse race that happens every year. Do you know about it? Uh, I lived in yeah, for a year, my year abroad. So Palio, uh, Josh, have you heard of Palio? No. 
as a other than the diet. No, not the diet. So it's, it's called the Palio, and it involves all the houses of Siena yeah. racing. There's just one race. The horses. Each each rider represents one of the houses. But the the most insane thing about it is that you know pretty much who's going to win it before it even happens because it's not really an exercise. It's so corrupt. It's like the is it is it's worse literally than, horse trading. It's like it's worse than what's the um what's the European football people the the, the uh, UEFA. It's worse than UEFA because it's it's an exercise in game theory. Like who can bribe who enough to ensure that their house wins. And that is all you're betting on. And at the end of the day, um, I mean, you'd find it fascinating just from a game theory perspective. Uh, there was a good documentary about it ages ago. Yeah, and there's also a bit of chaos that. in the mix because, like, basically, it's not necessarily the rider who wins. If the rider falls off his horse, the horse can win without him. So if the rider falls off and the horse, which isn't supposed to win, just decides to win anyway because the horse isn't aware of all the sort of horse dealing, the horse trading that's been going on before, then you've got a real problem on your hands. <laughs> and like, who's responsible? It, it's a really fun <laughs> thing to go and visit, though. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing city. Um, and then on that bombshell, I think we'll wrap up for today. And... Uh, you know, we'll leave we'll leave Josh to his merry ways and I don't know which weird home. Hint. what? At home. At home. And yeah, exactly. That makes perfect sense. Um also the delay is driving me nuts. So sorry for the quality of the audio. It's um I don't know whose internet it is, but it's it's a bit It's dark. mine, sorry. It's always it's mine. It's okay. Well, it's, we'll blame it on the fascist, the fascist trying to do internet and all the internet tells me that all these European countries are better. Exactly. But Ben, thank you so much for joining us. And um, we look forward to your further reporting on matters, Vatican and intrigue. Um, excellent stuff. Thank you very much. Vatican correspondent, oh, like Ben, yeah, signing out. Was, was an honor. <laughs>